and even in our fellowship in between one another. May you be glorified in all of it. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Uh, please stand. We're going to open with Great is Thy Faithfulness, number 54, if you want to follow along in the hymnal. Psalm 146a. If you want to follow along in your Psalter, it should be one in your pew.
number 10. Great art.
For our scripture reading this morning, you can turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, and we will be reading verses 13 through 23. Beginning in verse 13. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. And then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go as it were to the sea. But Silas and Timotheus abode there still. And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens, and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus, for to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews, and with the devout persons, and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, What will this babbler say? Other some, He seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him I declare unto you. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you this day for the word that you have given. We thank you for the Bible. And we thank you that the Holy Spirit, by your grace, moved men to write these very words. And we thank you for preserving them for us in the 66 books from Genesis to Revelation. Lord, this, by your grace, is our authority. This is what we are to believe. This is what we are to obey. This is what we are to practice, what we find here in your word. And so it is a great privilege for us to gather this morning and have your word here and to hear the sermon from this text in the book of Acts. And so we pray that as your word is taught, as your word is preached, that you would apply it to us, that you would sink it deep down in our ears. Lord, renew our minds, sanctify us more fully. And have your perfect work in us through this time. For your glory and in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good to have us all gathered together here once again. As we always say, we're 
so thankful to have his word, amen, because uh, I'll be honest with you, men's emotions change. We change all the time, brethren, and uh, God's word never changes. And uh, so that is our foundation, and this morning we have certainly been blessed by God, amen, to have unbelievable access to it. Think about this, brethren, for a moment. We were praying this morning of the elders as we were gathered together. Thinking about this for a moment, just think, just a few generations ago, not very long ago, brethren, everybody sitting in the pew depended upon what the pastor, the preacher, was going to say. You realize that, right? They couldn't read. It's a stunning thing, the, if you will, the responsibility that a, an elder has as he stands before those whom God has gathered together before him to preach the word of God and to convey that as the Holy Spirit takes that word out there. It is a daunting responsibility. It is a stunning thing to me, too, to, to see how lightly men have taken now the word of God. Amen. Like it's some kind of a joke. We can make funny jokes and just, you know, have a good time and, you know, this kind of a thing. When, in fact, the elder, the preacher, has been given a very glorious responsibility by God himself. And that is to what? To feed the flock of God. As you're sitting here this morning, it's our prayer, isn't it? It's my prayer as well, that the Spirit of God will indeed feed you this morning from his word. Amen? And uh, so this morning as we begin again in this glorious narrative, this inspired narrative of church history, we always like to begin, because we go verse by verse through the Bible, amen? And so for some maybe haven't been here, we have to again lay the groundwork up to where we've gotten here this morning in our text, and it has indeed been a glorious time as we've been spending Lord's Day after Lord's Day after Lord's Day here in the book of Acts. But we remember, don't we, brother, and just by way of remembrance, because my hair is gray, it's a different color, a Chad, you probably see that, amen, it's a little different than the last time you saw me, and, uh, but the mind gets forgetful, amen, and so uh, we've been gone a whole week uh, since last Lord's Day morning, and so let me just bring us kind of up to speed here on where we're at in our text this morning. We remember last Lord's Day morning that the Spirit of God had led Paul and Silas away uh, from Philippi, and they were traveling down to Thessalonica. That's where we were at last week in our text, where they immediately entered into the Jewish synagogue. And again, we see this pattern of Paul going first to the Jewish synagogue, and then he's preaching the Lord Jesus there, and he's, he was opening and alleging. We looked at those words last week in our text, and how important that is that, again, as a man stands and preaches the word of God, that we certainly have the Holy Spirit helping us to allege. They, again, Paul's constant message was that Jesus died, he was to suffer, he died, and he rose again. Amen. The gospel, this is what the gospel is. That is the Reader's Digest condensed version of the gospel, that Jesus died according to the scriptures, that he was buried according to the scriptures, that he what? Rose again according to the scriptures. And we saw that And Paul's message last week again through the Holy Spirit of God, was that it was this particular Jesus, the one that is spoken of in scriptures, that one must believe on to be saved. Amen. There's, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, you realize, brothers and sisters, that there are other spirits. There are other gospels. There are other Christs that are being preached, but it's not the Christ or the gospel or the Holy Spirit of the, of the scriptures. And so, again, this is our foundation. This is where we must lie with our time together this morning. So he preached the gospel, and the gospel, uh, God designed the gospel to do certain things, and 
what it does this morning, even as we're sitting together, is it divides. <laughs> the gospel divides. You know, the limp-wristed evangelicals don't like to talk about doctrine. They don't like to talk about these things because it divides. And that's exactly, brethren, what God designed it to do. Actually, it does two things. It divides right from wrong, amen, truth from untruth. And then what it does is that it simultaneously what? It gathers those who believe the gospel together. It gathers them together, the ecclesia, like we are this morning, the called out of God to gather together. This is what it does. It divides untruth, and it brings true believers together. And so God's gospel that was preached by Paul there in Thessalonica certainly did that. Amen? You remember what the unbelieving Jews, there were some, the Bible said, that believed. But there were some unbelieving Jews there who accused them of some crimes and you remember one of the crimes was that they were disturbing the Roman peace, the Pax Romana. That's what it was called, and it was punishable by death. And they actually dared to say, brethren, while they were preaching, that there's another king, one called Jesus. And, of course, we know that that is true. He's the only king. Amen. That, too, was punishable by death. And so we saw last week, brethren, how the Lord, again, it is amazing, isn't it? The evil one will try his tricks. He always does. He tries to thwart the, thwart the gospel from going forward. And all God does is use all of that that took place to take his preachers, again, to another city within the region there. And so, again, God's glorious purposes always, brethren, always will come to pass. Amen? Even as we remember, uh, you know, in the Old Testament many times, you know, Joseph... <laughs> What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And so, again, we see this in our text this morning. It really is quite an amazing thing. And so, what we don't understand sometimes is the insatiable hatred that these Jewish people had, the unbelieving Jews had for the gospel. And we're going to see that in our text this morning. I want you to notice with me, if you would, in our text. Look there at verses 13, 14, and 15. We're just going to kind of group it all together this morning because something interesting certainly takes place here that draws our attention. Look at verse 13. But when the Jews of where? Thessalonica. <laughs> now, brothers, it wasn't enough that they had just driven Paul and Silas out of their city. They followed them to Berea. It's an amazing thing, brother. Look what it says there. It says, But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. So again, I call them the hounds of hell. The hounds of hell followed Paul and Silas. They preached in Thessalonica. They cast them out of there. And here we have, again, we find that same crew. It's an amazing thing. In fact, my little mind is just a stunning thing sometimes. It scares me, actually, sometimes when I'm thinking about things. I'm not sure, but I worded it this way. Now, this is my own mind, brothers. You know what I mean? The hounds of hell got a sniff from 50 miles away that the glorious gospel of Christ was perfuming the air in Berea. Think of this for a moment. The glorious gospel going out. Many believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And those hounds of hell in Thessalonica were going to have none of it. They tracked them right down to Berea. And, of course, what did they do? They stirred them up, too. It's an amazing thing. Look back there at Acts chapter 14, if you will. This is their pattern. This is what they did. The hounds of hell, I call them. Look here, if you would, for Acts 14. Look at verses 1 and 2. And it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews, and so spake that a great multitude, both of the Jews and also the Greeks, believed. Again, this is what they did. They went into the synagogue preaching the word there, and God opened the hearts and minds of those 
believing Jews, his elect that are there, and they believed. Look at verse number 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. So here again, we have these unbelieving Jews that are just like a bunch of, if you will, hounds of hell following the gospel around, trying to interfere and interrupt with what God is doing. Lo and behold, look at verses 5 and 6 of that chapter. They're in Iconium. Look what they do. They just chase them around. It's an amazing thing. Look at verse number 5. And then when there was an assault made both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers to use them despitefully and stone them, that they were, uh, they were aware of it and fled into Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and unto the region that lieth round about. So again, here we go. They're, they're chasing them out of the city. They're going to stone them. They're chasing them out. And what do they do? Look just a little farther. Look at verses 19 and 20. There they are again, chasing them around. Look at verse 19. And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing that he had been dead. Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. So again, we see these Christ-hating, Christ-rejecting. Listen, think of this for a moment, brothers and sisters. Think of what religion does to one. Think about this for a moment. Religion tells one that they must do more. It's, it's a stunning thing. It's a very crippling thing, brother. You must do just a little bit more. You must work a little bit harder. You must do one more thing for God, and then he'll accept you. Now, nobody, brothers, brings their teeth out more than when a preacher comes along and says, no, it's by grace alone, amen, through Christ alone, by faith alone. Nothing drives a religionist more crazy than when you say, you know what? You can't do enough good to earn salvation with God. It must be a gift that he gives to you by faith, by Christ alone. And the religionists don't like that. This is what you have. You have religionists here who are trying to keep hold of their, their hold, if you will, upon those who are under their unholy care. And they don't like it. Religionists do not like that whatsoever. In fact, Holy Writ here reveals the depth, as I said, of their insatiable hatred for the gospel of Christ. A hatred, really, brethren, that, as we all know, is stirred up by the chief hound of hell himself, none other than Satan. Amen? I mean, Satan, we, again, I've said this a hundred times, a thousand times. We have no idea, brothers and sisters, we really can hardly comprehend, apart from scriptures, how much Satan hates the Lord Jesus Christ. And brother, listen, if you're a believer this morning, how much he hates you. It's a stunning thing, the depths that he will go to. He is indeed, as Peter said, a what? A roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There is no question about that. But here we have, you know, Paul being chased out is the fifth city that he's run out by the angry mob. Think of this, brethren. Boy, that's not friendship evangelism, is it? That's not, you know, people coming to Bismarck and pat, you know, preaching some pablum, and, and, and when they leave, they have the audacity to say that 75% of Bismarck got saved. It's a stunning thing. That just happened not too long ago. A preacher came to town and said, oh, all i got to tell you about what God did. 75% of Bismarck got saved when I was there. No, they didn't. If 75% of Bismarck got saved when he was here, you know what? Bible-believing churches would be full of people. You realize between Bismarck and Mandan, what is there, 100 and 
some odd thousand people. It's an amazing, stunning thing. 75% did not get, get saved. Here we see a repetitive pattern. Listen, when you inject, and we're going to look at this, when one injects the righteousness of God, which is what Paul is doing, when one injects the righteousness of God by preaching the gospel in that unholy system, that's, brethren, when the tidal wave starts. You just simply don't say anything. You just simply be a universalist. You just simply be an all-accepting and unholy gospel preacher. Everybody's going to love you. That's not the case with Paul. Not once. In fact, they stoned him. They chased him out of most cities that he was in because he was a man who shot his feet and prepared himself, as the Lord did, to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to see this. It's stunning to me, brethren, how applicable, how needful, let me say that word, that the Bible really is, how relevant it is for us today, because what we're seeing in our text is a pattern of what we're living out right now. It is a truly a stunning thing. Universalism, your God's as good as my God, any God's good, just as long as you believe in something, this is the world we live in, this is the world Paul is in. This is the one where Paul says, uh, no, that is not the truth whatsoever. So the sovereign God here in our text takes Paul, kicking him out of the fifth city, and he goes and preaches here at Athens. It's a stunning thing. Look at verses 16 and 17 of Acts chapter 17. Look there at those two verses together, and I want you to notice what happens to Paul keeping in mind, brethren, that there's a stirring that's been going on. The Jews have been stirring these satanic mobs, these, I call them the George Soros crowd. Remember last week, the baser sorts, those criminals that they don't work. They just hang out and do nothing. So you call them up and say, hey, I'll pay you 10 bucks an hour if you come on down here to Indianapolis or wherever it is and, and, and start a mob, a riot. That's what we have going on here. But there's a stirring here that is most holy, something that takes place in Paul that takes place, brethren, in every believing child of God. Look here, if you would, verses 16 and 17. Look what the Spirit of God does here. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his what? His spirit was stirred up in him. This is an amazing thing. When he saw the city holy, another word that's important given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews. There he is again disputing with the Jews. Not only that, but he's disputing with the devout people, those who are religious people. He's having a discussion. Remember last week we talked about this whole idea of having a dialogue. Again, can I say it? This morning I'm having a monologue with you. I'm preaching to you. Last week, again, we saw where there was a dialogue, where Paul was answering questions, where all of us, we saw that example, as Peter said. Brothers, this stuff just carries on and on in the Christian life. We should always be ready, what? To give an answer for the faith and trust in Christ that we have. This is what Paul is doing. There's a dialogue, and here we have, again, a dialogue that's going to take place. He's disputing in the synagogue with the Jews first, and then devout persons in the marketplace daily with them. That met with him. Now listen, brother. We do a lot of street preaching. We've done a lot of street preaching. Just this summer, we spent a little time out there, right, Brother Keith, right? Most of you here, we were all out there when the death people, the pro-death people were, right? 
They're bringing their, oh, oh, just the evilness of it all. There, there we are, out in the marketplace. Brothers and sisters, Christianity's not here. You understand this. You know the purpose of the church, right, young men? The purpose of the church is to uh, edify you, is to, is to grow you up in the Lord. That's what it's to do. So that when you leave, you can delete and deliver those things out in the marketplace. I heard people, oh, you keep your Christianity. No, we should not keep our Christianity to ourselves. We should not keep the gospel to ourselves. Paul didn't. Even in one of the most idolatrous parts of the world, he said, there's one. There's one way. There's one Savior amongst all of the idolatrous city that he was in. It's an amazing thing how the church has been turned into, can I say this, a limp-wristed fairy. Will not speak the truth. Don't want to offend anybody. We shouldn't offend people. But you know what does? Again, when you inject righteousness in the Christ into these things, people are offended greatly. And that's who it should be offended by. Not you and I, but by Christ. But we see this here, don't we, brother? And we see this, this other stirring that takes place. But again, it's not induced by the satanic mobs that we've been seeing all through the, the book of Acts as they're ginning up these things, these false riots, these fake things, stirring these things up. No, brethren, here in Athens, it is Paul's spirit within him that is stirred up, which is a stirring by the spirit of God himself. It's a stunning thing. That word stirred denotes a provocation that occurs over and over again. So, in other words, as Paul was waiting for Timothy and Silas to get there, he kept being provoked. He's walking around, he's seeing, listen, brethren, that word holy there is an amazing thing. It is just utterly swamped. If you can, the idea is to be utterly swamped. So, in other words, what that would be is Paul's walking around, and on every street corner, on every way down the sidewalk here, there's another what? There's another idol that is erected to another god, but not the god of holy writ. And so the Bible says that his spirit was indeed stirred within him. Now, the spirit of God did this, but this is Paul's spirit. You understand that, right? I mean, in Scripture, I want you to see this. This, every child of God cannot help themselves. When they see something so unholy go on, and the spirit of God stirs your spirit, you must speak the truth of God. You must. This is what Paul did. This is what he's saying. In fact, this, if you will, provoking of his spirit over and over again created quite a storm. It built and it built and it built. And I want you to see this. Look at Romans chapter 8. Just again, the definition here is important. Look at Romans chapter 8 with me, if you would. Look what the Bible says. And, of course, everybody knows what Romans chapter 8 is about. Now, we realize the book of Romans is broken up into, into parts. The first four chapters are God the Father. He is seen. The Trinity of God is everywhere. Five through seven, the Lord Jesus Christ becomes the focal point of the book of Romans. And then when we get to chapter 8, listen, brethren, 19 times, 19 times, in the first few verses of chapter 8 of the book of Romans, it is the Spirit of God who is the center of attraction. It's the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God did this. The Spirit of God done, did that. Now, I want you to see, again, this idea 
of the Spirit of God, if you will, stirring up Paul's spirit, that which is within him. Look at verse number 14. And again, brethren, 19 times leading up to the golden chain of redemption, the work that God does, the Holy Spirit of God is the center of attention. He is the center of the focal point of Paul's inspired writings in this chapter. Look here, if you would, at verse 14. Look what the Bible says. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, that's the Holy Spirit of God. <laughs> the Holy Spirit of God comes in the believer, and he what? He leads us. He, he, uh, he convicts us. He does all kinds of things, but the child of God is led by the Spirit of God. Look at here. They are the sons of God. What a beautiful thing. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again, of fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption. Again, the Holy Spirit of God. He adopts us as children into God's family, where we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 16. The Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, self beareth witness with our what? Spirit. There's the Holy Spirit of God bearing witness with our spirit. That thing that lives inside of us, you know, our soul, that thing that when our body dies, that lives forever. This is what Paul is happening to Paul. The Spirit of God is inducing in him. The Spirit of God is stirring up his spirit when he looks around and sees all this evil and all of this idolatry on every corner that is just swamped throughout the city. This is what he's doing, holy and utterly. Look at, if we would there, verse 16. The Spirit itself bear witness with our spirit. That we are what? The children of God. So the Holy Spirit bears with your spirit. If you're saved this morning and tells you and shows you and as your life lives it out that you are indeed a child of God. Look at 1 Corinthians. Paul says it again. This is interesting. In fact, if, if we had time, which we don't this morning, I could take you to the book of Job. I can take you to several books in the Old Testament where the Bible clearly teaches well, we could go to Genesis chapter 2. The first, what? When God created men, he, what? He breathed life into them. He gave them a spirit. That's what we're talking about. It goes way back to what God did. It goes way back to the beginning. Job said there's a spirit in a man. There's a candle, the, the, the book of Proverbs says, which is the spirit of the Lord. The Lord puts these in here. This is what's happening. This is Paul. This is what's being stirred. In him. Look again here in 1 Corinthians, if you would, chapter 2. Again, this is something that is, you know, brethren, it's, if you will, it's theology 101. But sometimes we must go to theology 101 so that men have, and ladies, I look over here, and ladies too, okay, ladies. I use men as a term, a generic term for all brethren. So that we have a proper foundation. Look here. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at verse number 9. Look what Paul says. But as it is written. Where's that written at? Well, it's written in Isaiah. <laughs> That's where it's written at. Again, notice how Paul always goes back to the old. Always goes back. Don't ever disconnect from it. I say it all the time. As it is written, the Bible says. I hath not seen nor ear heard. Neither have entered into the heart of men. The things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Remember Bill Clinton? <laughs> I hate to dive into politics here, but I'm going to remember that. I mean, these politicians, they know how to misquote Scripture more than anybody I know. Even some of the heathens, Joel Osteen and the rest of them, they're misquoting Scripture. It's, it's a stunning thing. But here we have a biblical truth that, again, was taken completely out of context. But look at verse 10. But God hath revealed them unto us by his what? 
Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of a man? There it is again, the, the idea here again. This is what's happening to Paul. He's sitting there and he's going, wait a minute. The Holy Spirit of God is, is provoking me now. Now he's drawing me that I must stand up and I must speak the truth here where I'm at in this idolatrous city. Finish the verse there. Of a man save the spirit of a man which is in him. Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. This is what's happening, brethren. We see this. It's an amazing thing. Now let me say this again. When the Holy Spirit of God steers, stirs, stirs up, stirs up, stirs up your spirit within you, it's an amazing thing. The child of God cannot help, brothers. You cannot help it, but speak God's exclusively narrow way. What do I mean by that? Well, many of us remember, well, he was, I don't want to pick on him too much. I don't want to speak too ill of the dead. But he was called, remember, America's preacher. Remember that? Who was who that? You guys can blurt it out. It was Billy, no other than Billy Graham, right? He was America's, pre, America's preacher. He might have been, but he wasn't mine. Let me give you a quote of what he said. In fact, he said this. I called the guy this. He said this to a modern-day hound of hell, Robert Schuller. And I wrote it down perfectly so we could get it right, so you can hear it. And I want you to listen carefully to the hisses, the hisses from the hell itself. You know, Spurgeon once said, you know what discernment is, brother? It's not knowing right from wrong. Discernment is knowing right from almost right. Do, do you understand that? That's a whole nother level. It's not knowing when people look at something wrong, you know it's wrong. But when it's almost right, that's when you've got to have the Spirit of God to give you that discernment and say, it's almost right, but it's not right. Listen to this quote, brethren. Oh, the hisses. I can hear it. I can hear it now. Listen to this. God is calling people out of the world for his name. That is true. God is calling, and he always has. That's his work. That's what he does. He draws men. He's calling men out of the world. Listen, that's true. Listen to what else is true. Whether they come from the Muslim world or the Buddhist world or the Christian world or the non-believing world, they are members of the body of Christ because they've been called by God. That is true. Now, brethren, let me inject the satanic poison into the, into the rest of the statement. They might not even know the name of God or the name of Jesus. Brethren, your radars as a Christian should be up higher than, I don't know, Mount, Mount Marioba or wherever you want to go to, your radars, as soon as somebody says that, your, your, your spirit within you should rise up and say, wait a minute, what do you mean they may not know the name of Jesus? <laughs> I can tell you this morning, nobody gets saved apart from knowing the name of Jesus. That's it. But here we have America's preacher uttering this satanic garbage. In fact, as I say, a third grader, <laughs> brethren, a third grader who is saved knows better than to utter that nonsense. Listen. They may not even know the name of Jesus, but they know in their hearts that they need something they don't have. And they turn to the only light they have. The only light they have apart from Jesus is darkness. There is nothing else to turn to. 
Listen to this. Hissing. I can hear it. Can you? And I think they're saved. And they're going to be in heaven with us. No, they're not. No. This is nothing more than a bunch of dribble. And then, you know what old Robert Schuler, that old goat roper, whatever he was, liar, deceiver, he looks at Billy Graham and he goes, oh, so what you're saying, Billy, is there's a wideness with God. Check the scriptures, brothers. Check your scriptures. I think it was Jesus who said, we can quote it. Broad is the way. Wide is the path that leads to destruction. And many there, what, find it. But narrow, straight, narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life, and few find it. That is the most unbiblical, unholy hogwash a man could ever utter. In fact, again, a third grader who is saved knows this verse. Let us turn. You can be saved without knowing the name of Jesus? Oh, brothers, grab your, what, what would we grab? Our socks? Grab your tie? Grab onto something. It's a lie from hell. Absolutely, positively. We know this verse. We can quote it, but let's turn there together. In fact, it's in our book, the book of Acts. Turn there, if you would, for just a moment. Brethren, Paul lived in one of the most idolatrous places there ever has been in Athens and in these cities as he was going through there. Not once did he ever deviate. Not once did he ever utter such nonsense. They're turning to the light they have. The only light of the world is who? The Lord Jesus Christ. We'll look at verse number 11 of Acts chapter 4. We could quote this. But I want to read it so we get it right. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner of the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked last week. God's building his church. He's the henner. He's the cornerstone. The walls and the floor, everything are what? Guided by the cornerstone of a building. It, 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 it defines everything else in the building. The cornerstone must be right. The walls then will be right. The floor will be right. Everything will be straight. If you don't have the chief cornerstone, your walls are falling down. There is no building. None. Look at verse 12. Neither. Neither is there, brother. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other, what? Say it together. Name by which one must be saved. No, you're not saved without knowing the name Jesus Christ. Billy Graham, I don't care what you say. I don't care what the rest of them say. The Bible says it. There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. You know that word must is important. We looked at this. We've already preached through this, but it's so much fun to go back and remind ourselves. That word must is so important, brother. It's an emphatic. There is no other alternative. This is the final must. The Lord Jesus Christ believing in him is the finest. It is the end. And brothers, you're not going to as when we were part of the Southern Baptist Convention, which praise the Lord, we got out of that mess. Amazing where they've, the depths. Remember Brother Dean? I get an email. Brother Howard, you remember that. 
Got an email from a pastor down in South Dakota, went down to the Sturgis Rally down there. He emails me and says, hey, I got this lady in Bismarck we met down here. She was in here for our two-minute gospel presentation. She trusted in Christ. But just remember, Mike, if you get a hold of her, she may not remember because she was so intoxicated. She may not remember. No, no, no. That is utter nonsense. I want to actually jump on this pulpit and do a flip because that is such utter nonsense. You do not come to Christ, brothers and sisters, without knowing his name. Without knowing who he is. You don't forget it. We sang them songs this morning. I get goosebumps, brothers and sisters. Ooh, I just, you know, Clinton used to get, you know, uh, the reporters would shake shakies up their leg when Clinton would walk in the room. I get shakies when I sing songs like we sang this morning, thinking about what God did for me and for you. Think of this. He who knew no sin became sin for you and for me, that we might be made whew, the righteousness of God in him. He took our place. You got what he deserved. He got what you deserved. He was holy and perfect and righteous his whole life. Think of that, the great exchange. I still, I pray this morning you never get used to it. May it never become old news. May it always be something that comes to our mind. Look what he did, which I could never do. Steeped in sin and lost forever. There is no other name by which men must be saved. The Lord Jesus Christ. This is who Paul has been preaching. That name, him, the one who scriptures speak of. The Lord Jesus Christ of scripture. Now listen, let's turn back to Acts chapter 17. Look at verse number 18. It gets really interesting as we move along in our text. Look there, if you would, at verse number 18. Then certain philosophers, every time I hear that word, it reminds me of my buddy. He was a pastor. He had a picture on his desk. And uh, this dude had a whole bunch of books under his arm right here. And he's trying to get into this. Above the door, it said, School of Higher Learning. And he's, he's leaning against the door with all these books under his arms. And right there, there's a sign that says, Pull. Philosophers, that's what they are. That's, what, that's it. They have no reasoning, no spiritual light. They're simply men spewing what men spew. But look at there, what he says there in verse 18. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. It's an amazing thing, again, how relevant Scripture is. Luke here introduces us to the third group whom Paul interacts, the philosophers of, a of Athens. He first, if you will, mentions the Epicureans, who were followers of Epicurus, who lived his short life about 71 years. <laughs> so his whole philosophy, he didn't get to enjoy it very long. He lived from 341 to 270 B.C. Now listen, they believe, and the reason I say they believe, because this is something that is alive and well all around you right now in America. This might as well be talking about America and the way we live. It's an amazing thing. He mentions the Epicurean. They believe that pleasure is the highest virtue and is indeed the chief end of men. Oh, my goodness, brothers. <laughs> Can I mention the, the shorter catechism for a moment? Anybody who's been through it knows what number one is. 
I could have these young men stand up here and quote it. What is the chief end of man? Not for pleasure, not for living a life that is unholy and ungodly, but what? Pardon me? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. This brethren is alive and well in our nation right now. All they want is pleasure. <laughs> Can I imitate the politicians? We, we only want to help you. And uh, just so you know, we're doing it for the children. It's all for the children. I'm going to cry. What a bunch of unholy hogwash. As we used to say back when I was young, boulder dashing, poppycock. That's what that is. We're doing it for the children. No, you're not. You're evil. Look at here. Their slogan is, still is, and was, even when Paul wrote this. Let us eat and sleep and be merry because tomorrow we what? Die. These are who Paul is dealing with, these Epicureans. Well, secondly, he mentioned in our text there the Stoics, who were followers of Zeno. He lived roughly about the same time, 340 to 265 B.C. They, listen, America on display, and I'm not just saying America, men in general, the world in general, what did they believe? They emphasized, they do emphasize human rational abilities and individual self-sufficiency. <laughs> you ever heard that one? One of the, my favorite radio commentators who is now with the Lord he said he trusted in the Lord. Rush Limbaugh used to say it all the time. You've got to pull yourself up by your own what? Bootstraps. This right here is what they believed. Self-regulation, self-pulling up of the bootstraps. You can't even begin to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. They stress reason and human logic as the principles where all people should be regulated. I think we're seeing it, aren't we? Aren't we seeing human logic and human reasoning on display? See, in the human mind, it's okay to say, this young man right here is not really a man, he's a girl. He can just identify with whatever he wants to identify with. This is what human reasoning does to the world. Without the bumpers of God. This is what they believe. This is the stuff Paul's preaching this stuff in. It's no different than us today. They're trying, brethren, again, they're going to hang me, I'm sure, but let them hang me. I really don't care. This whole idea. Well, I don't want to go there. This COVID thing just drove me insane. It's unbelievable. Human logic, human reason, was to put a diaper on your face, and that's going to save you. That's human reasoning. Hey, shut down the churches. Shut down the Bible-believing churches. You Bible believers, stay at home now. Meanwhile, we're going to continue to kill our children. We're going to continue to have every immoral operation that's in the country going. <laughs> Not so fast. As <laughs> soon as us elders figured out what that was. We put a stop to that immediately. If it's Ebola, brothers, I'll be preaching to an empty place. But this scam that they tried to pull on us is a stunning thing.
And you know what Americans did? And their human reasoning, they just gave up their freedoms like that. <laughs> Meanwhile, I walk into a store. I'm sorry, guys. I'm on a I walk into a store, and there's a 19-year-old kid there with 14 masks on his face sticking out to here. He looks like Pinocchio because he's so scared of his own shadow. And he pulls the 14 masks down, and he goes, can I get a carton of those Marlboro Reds right there? And you look, and you just go, that's the mind of a depraved man that does not trust in God or in Christ or in the Bible, but rather in human reasoning. It's insanity, brothers. This is why it's so important. Now, they are pantheists, which, of course, we know as modern-day evolutionists, New Age, in fact. They deny the personhood of God, big G. It's an amazing thing. But identify God, little g, in there, I like to call it, quote-unquote, Mother Nature. I always have to tell my kids, brothers, when someone says it's Mother Nature, it's not. It's Father God. Remember him? It's not Mother Nature. What happened is they are worshiping Mother Nature. They find God in everything. Oh, we know it. I've seen stuff written on sidewalks. Don't step on the flowers. They have feelings too. I said, where's my weed whacker? This is who they are. This is who Paul is dealing with. In fact, look at verse 22. Look what, Paul, what the Bible says there in verse 22. When Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill, he said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too what? Superstitious. You're too religious. You're more religious, if you will, than anyone else. It's an amazing thing. In fact, their slogan is, their lifestyle is this. The divine is a kind of world soul. The divine is a kind of world soul. What is that? Nobody understands what that is. Do you understand what that is? Nobody does. But it sure sounds good to their human reasoning. That God is some kind of big, if you will, world soul. What a stunning thing it is. In fact, with that kind of babble... Turn with me to verses 17 and, or, yeah, 18 through 20. With that kind of babble, that kind of belief, look what they call Paul. Look here, Acts chapter 17. Look there, if you would, at verse 18 again. We'll read that together. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered him, and some said, what will this babbler say? It's amazing. No, you're babbling. Paul's not babbling. He's preaching. Listen, what will this babbler say? Other some, he seemeth to be set forth of strange gods, plurality, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we uh, know what this new doctrine, what, uh, what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. <laughs> Stunning, isn't it? They call Paul, Paul a babbler. These philosophers do indeed take Paul to a session of the Areopagus which, of course, if you understand, is the city council of Athens, the chief judicial body of the city. <laughs> kind of like one of our brothers just, you know, he had to go up against the city. He's been fighting some unholy things, right? We're going to bring some unholy things into the library. We get 5,000, we get this and that. And here we have, you know, a brother who's standing up to the... This is what Paul's doing. He's 
in the Areopagus, he's standing there, the city council before them, and they're going, hey, we want to hear about this strange doctrine, this death, burial, and resurrection thing that you're speaking of. That word babbler means this. This you'll understand what it means. It's a word that means seed picker. It denotes a bird. Have you ever watched birds out in your yard? You ever watched them? Oh, yeah, you watch them out there, and they're picking here, and they're picking there, and they're picking over here, and they're picking over there. That's literally what it means. They're seed pickers. He's saying Paul's just a seed picker, and here we are listening to this glorious thing. We're going to pick a little here, and we're going to pick a little there. This is exactly what it is. In fact, here it refers to a loafer in the marketplace. <laughs> Imagine a loafer in the marketplace. Stunning thing. Who picks up scraps of learning and then parades them all around. It's amazing. They call Paul a babbler. And these are the loafers who sit there. And you know what they're doing all day long? You know what they do all day long? Well, look at verse 21. This is what they do all day long. These philosophers and these human reasoners. Look at verse 21. For all the Athenians and strangers that were, uh, which were uh, there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. They're loafers picking around looking for the latest, well, this truth, that truth, every truth, what? They're all the same. Your truth's not better than my truth. This is the culture. This is where Paul is standing and preaching the gospel. Right there. Right where we stand brothers and sisters, right in America today, where when you have a discussion, a dialogue with one out on the streets, one of the first things they'll normally utter out of their pie holes is this, your God is just as good as my God. What makes your God better than my God? Brethren, we better have an answer. You better know and understand what the God of the Bible, who he is, what he's done so that you can give an answer, brothers and sisters, for what you believe. Now Paul is standing in the Areopagus, Mars Hill, and he speaks to them concerning the altar that he saw to the unknown God. Paul references an ignorance of the divine. That's what he does here. Hey, I noticed there's a, you got this altar over here that says unknown God on it. So he's, he's simply acknowledging something they're acknowledging. What are they acknowledging, brothers and sisters? That they're ignorant of the divine. They don't know who he is. They don't know. They just, well, we're going to, you know, have an altar here to this God, and we're going to have one to that. And just in case we missed one, <laughs> we're going to just write unknown God there. We're going to put it there. In fact, there's, there is some history concerning what took place 600 years before Paul got here. This thing was erected some hundred years, several hundred years earlier when a plague went through the city, amazingly, isn't it? And a human reasoner said, hey, let's send some sheep through the city. And wherever the sheep lays down, well, we're going to erect an altar to that God. So if they lay down over by the river, we're going to erect an altar to the river. If they lay down over here. And what happened was they said if the sheep doesn't lay down by anything, and he just lays down, well, that's the unknown God. We don't know who he is. Literally. It's a stunning thing historically to grasp and get right here in the scripture. Something that is so historical and so true. Something that we certainly 
need to know. Now, brothers, he, he references their ignorance of the divine, of the God of the Bible. These, of course, as I said, they admitted it themselves. But brethren, listen, this is what a sound preacher does. Now, you understand this. <clears throat> brothers and sisters, again, all of this kind of leads back to us being students of the word of God. It really does. Being ones who can give an answer. Have you ever seen on TV when they interview a Christian or sometimes they'll interview homeschoolers like us and they, they find the one that hasn't bathed in 12 years and then there's drool coming out of their mouth and that's what they present. So we're nothing but a bunch of buffoons. We are not to be ignorant, brethren, of cults. Okay, We're not to be ignorant of that. If a Mormon comes knocking on your door, can you stand there and say, your God is not my God. Your Jesus is not my Jesus. Well, why? Can you then explain why? Yes, you better. Or Jehovah Witness, I don't care what cult comes. You should be able to, as a grown, mature Christian, be able to define that. And this is what Paul does. Look at verse 28. It's an amazing thing, Paul, the wisdom that he had. Look here, verse number 28. We're jumping ahead a little bit, but I want you to see what he does. He acknowledges their ignorance of the divine. Then he says this, but I know something about you guys. I know something about your cults. Look at verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain of also of your own, what? Poets have said. Paul's drawing their attention to their own cult leaders, to their own cultists. He said, I, I know you don't know this God over here, but this is what your poet says. This is what they said. For we also are his offspring. And again, he just simply references the cultic, uh, if you will, culture that he's in. And again, brethren, it's important, isn't it? He did it in Titus, too. He quotes one of their own poets. Remember what he said? Your own poet says you're nothing but a bunch of lazy, what, gluttons. This is what you are. Paul quotes him. But then this is the glorious thing of it all. We must, again, brethren, always be aware, aren't we? To not be ignorant, but we must, again, be sound in the faith. Do you see what I'm saying? We must be sound in the faith. The faith that was once what? Delivered unto the saints. We must be sound there, but we almost also must not be a bunch of ignorant buffoons that don't know anything. Paul certainly was not one of those. Again, we must recognize right from almost right. Look at here as we finish up here this morning. Look at verse number 23. This really is where it all goes. Paul this was such a glorious and good preacher. Look at verse 23. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I felt an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship. What does he say? Him I declare unto you. It's a stunning thing, brethren, when the preacher does such a glorious thing. What a biblical, glorious biblical declaration. You remember back, and we don't have time to turn there, but if you went back to, to verse number 3, Paul there, as he was speaking to the Jews, in verse number 3, he did this. He pointed them right back to who? To the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten, the unique Son of God. That's what that word begotten means. He's unique because there's none like him. What does Paul do here? <laughs> he first directs the Jews to the, to the Jewish Savior, to their Messiah, the Christ, this Christ, 
All Paul does here is he points them to God the Father. The Father, God the Father, the God of Holy Scripture. They're not Jews. <laughs> They're not going to listen to that right now. But he points them, as we're going to see as we go on in our text, how he lays again the foundation of God, who is the ever-eternal one, he who is existent, who has created all things. He's the one. This is what Paul does here. In fact, I like what A.W. Pink said. It still holds true that the world by wisdom knew not God. It's still true. Where the scriptures are ignored, where the scriptures are ignored, brethren, God is the unknown God. It is the God of scripture, how we know God, how we know Christ, how we come to know who he is. It's through the inspired scriptures. So let me close because it's, we're well on here. Let me close with a practical point this afternoon. What unbelieving men see as turning the world upside down, in all actuality, brother, in all reality, is sovereign God turning the world right side back up. You realize this. What the evil system sees as being turned upside down is actually Paul and the Lord God, what, writing the world back right side up. It's writing the ship. When Adam sinned, mankind and the world flipped off its spiritual axis. Your father, my father, my representative had Adam sin and disobeyed God and he was separated from God and that flipped the whole world off of its spiritual axis, brethren. Completely and totally flipped it upside down. Those, he who had perfect unity with God now is separated from God. He who had perfect unity with God is now hiding from God in the garden. It's an amazing thing. Therefore, God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, flips it back right side up through the gospel. It's an amazing thing. In fact, in John chapter 3, Jesus said this, that men love darkness. Men love darkness. That is a picture of men being flipped upside down. It's an amazing thing. In other words, brethren, men love their system. They get along with their system because their deeds, as Jesus said, are evil. As long as you're out with the evil system and working in the evil system and doing what the evil deeds do, there's nary a problem. Nary. Just think if Paul would have went to Athens. He said, oh, well, I see all. I mean, this place is swamped with idols. Well, that's good. That's their God. I'm just going to keep on going. There would have been no shred of him getting tossed out of another city of him being brought before the council, none of it would have happened. He would have just kept his mouth shut like we as Americans have been told to do now as Christians, right? That's your private life. This is your Christian life over here. You've got to separate the two. No, brethren, when you're a child of God, you are threaded through. You are threaded through with the Holy Spirit of God in all of you. That Spirit of God interacts with your spirit within you and then compels one to speak of the exclusivity of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Brethren, because, listen, there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our text this morning. We thank you for the glorious example of the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timotheus men who were sound in the faith, men who 
you drew and saved, converted, transformed into the image of your beloved son, men who had the spirit of God living inside of them. And they could not help themselves, just like we as true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ.